At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from life. You know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeart3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. How can we translate reams of data, thousands of words, complicated formulas, into the yes-no signals that the computer can understand? The answer is binary arithmetic a system that uses only two digits, one and zero. The binary number 101 equals five in the decimal system. Any number can be written in the binary system. 142,857 looks like this in binary arithmetic. This system of arithmetic is actually... The Rendlesham Forest encounter has gone through a number of stages since its occurrence at the very end of 1980. The newspapers picked it up in 1983, making it public for the first time. And then, 30 years later, came new statements from the witnesses, with new details and even entirely new aspects of the encounter, enhancing the original accounts, making them stranger and more incredible. I'm Toby Ball, and this is Strange Arrivals. Episode 4, Eyes of Your Eyes. I'm sure you've heard of the Roswell UFO crash. Briefly, in 1947, a rancher named Mac Braswell discovered debris on his land near Roswell, New Mexico. He called the Air Force, who came out to the site and retrieved the strange collection of materials strewn across the scrubland. On July 8th, the Roswell Daily Record ran a front-page article with the headline, RAAF Captures Flying Saucer on Ranch in Roswell Region. RAAF stands for Roswell Army Airfield. The Army quickly put out a correction, identifying the wreckage as a downed weather balloon. What many people don't realize is that the Roswell crash really disappeared from view for about 30 years. 
It wasn't really a part of UFO lore until the 1980 publication of The Roswell Incident by Charles Berlitz and William Moore. This began the Roswell crash's second life, and it eventually became the most well-known UFO incident of all. But for right now, what's interesting is the process the story underwent, from the initial claim to the refutation of that claim to hibernation to reemergence. The Roswellian syndrome is my name for a phenomenon that I first recognized regarding the famous Roswell incident. But I realized that what had happened with the Roswell incident had also happened at a number of other UFO cases. I'm Joe Nickel. I'm probably the world's only full-time science-based professional paranormal investigator. If there's another one somewhere in the world, I think I would know about him. What I found was that there's a kind of uh, process in which these things occur. You know, it doesn't explain all UFO incidents, of course, but it's of a pattern that you can group certain cases into the Roswellian syndrome. The syndrome is composed of five elements. First, a UFO incident must occur. And then, quite often, as at Roswell, that gets debunked very promptly. Somebody brings forth evidence or something happens that that case is pretty much uh, put down, seemingly explained, whatever. And that's stage two. As a consequence of the debunking, stage three, that story goes underground. It doesn't go away, I found. It goes underground. And then step four is that once it's underground, it's subject to a variety of myth-making processes. For example, simple rumors and gossip and various other things like uh, people's tendency to exaggerate. This can also include people's memories changing over time, combining stories, filling in missing pieces, confabulating. And, of course, deliberate hoaxing. The paranormal attracts hoaxers quite a bit, I've found. And then the final step, number five, is that this story then emerges like a uh, virulent form of a virus. It comes back. And now it's armed in ways that the original incident, which was maybe pretty easily debunked or at least dismissed, it's now sort of vaccinated against that kind of dismissal. In season one of Strange Arrivals, we saw how memory inevitably changes over the course of years due to a number of factors, and this can lead to stories changing as well. Every time you're telling that story, as you're saying, if you've told it a hundred times, the hundredth time you're telling it, you're remembering the 99th time you told it, and the 99th time you're remembering the 98th time you told it. This is Dr. Mark Henn, 
Principal Lecturer at University of New Hampshire. Among others, he's taught a course on paranormal and other extraordinary beliefs. We have several biases in there. We have a bias that makes us more the focus of the story, so the things that happen to us are more prominent. We have a bias that puts the memories in line with what we believe about ourselves now. So even if we have changed tremendously since that time, that story is going to fit who we are now. There's a number of other ones that stories tend to, as you say, streamline and fit a storyline better than the fragmented way that we might remember it initially. But people remember things that they can't possibly have remembered. They remember things that, in fact, did not happen. On June 17, 2010, 30 years after his encounter, Chuck Halt wrote and signed an affidavit committing to paper his current-at-the-time memory of his encounter in Rendlesham Forest on night three. It's not surprising that there are a number of inconsistencies between this affidavit and the memo that he wrote in the days immediately following the encounter. Some of them have to do with the number and locations of the objects that he saw in the sky. Some are more significant. In the affidavit, Halt writes, About the same time, uh, someone noticed a similar object in the southern sky. It was round, and at one point it came towards us at a very high speed. It stopped overhead and sent down a pencil-like beam, sort of like a laser beam. And that illuminated the ground about 10 feet from us. And we just stood there in awe, wondering whether it was a signal, a warning, or what it was. It clicked off as though someone threw a switch, and then the object receded back up into the sky. In episode two, we heard Halt, in an interview I conducted with him for this series, describe this part of his encounter. And, in fact, we hear about a beam of light in the Halt tape. And he mentions it briefly in the memo, stating that the object, quote, beamed down a stream of light from time to time. But there is nothing in either the recording or the 1981 memo that hints that the beam of light came within 10 feet of Halt and his party. This claim is new and sensational information that emerged 30 years after the fact. The 2010 affidavit continues. This object then moved back toward Bentwaters and continued to send down beams of light at one point near the weapons storage area. We knew that because we could hear the chatter on the two-way radio. Several airmen present later told me that they saw the beams. Uh, I don't remember any names at this point. This part of the halt recording references a light hovering over Woodbridge Base and sending down light beams. But the 1981 memo doesn't mention this, and just as with the beam coming within 10 feet of him, Halt seems to be taking a moment on the tape and making it more dramatic and compelling in retrospect. And it's hard to check this new detail, because Chuck doesn't remember the names of the witnesses. But there is no contemporaneous corroboration of this happening. This fits the model of the new emerging story in Joe Nichols' Roswellian Syndrome. It's coming back in this virulent strain with all sorts of evidence, 
maybe real evidence, maybe alleged evidence, but a whole bunch of things. The new evidence includes claims that on the nights of December 26th and 28th, unidentified objects were picked up on radar. In 1980, by all accounts, there was no confirmation that any strange objects had been detected on radar. 30 years later, however, that detail had changed. In 2008, a UFO researcher named Robert Hastings posted an excerpt from a book he had published in which he found two former military technicians from RAF Bentwaters and RAF Woodbridge who claimed to have seen unexplainable objects on radar as well as to have witnessed the craft with their own eyes. Their names were Ike Barker and Jim Carey. This is from a story in the April 15, 2016 edition of The Mirror, an English newspaper. Ike Barker said, It wasn't like any radar target I've ever seen. It was traveling at an extremely high rate of speed. It passed over the control tower, and then it stopped. I've never seen anything like the maneuverability that happened with this object. It was orange in color, and it popped into my mind that somebody was flying a basketball out here. There were lights around the center, but not like navigation lights. It was more like portholes, as if you were seeing the lights from the inside coming out. It hovered momentarily, reversed its course, and went back out at a high rate of speed. Carey, a tech sergeant with the 2164th Communications Squadron, said the unknown target made a sharp right-angle turn at high speed before it left the area. He said, It was just phenomenal to see it go that fast. I said that can't be one of ours. No jet can make an immediate right-hand turn. The radar experts did not report the sighting to their superiors over fears that it could ruin their careers. Halt has spoken with the two men. And the two air traffic controllers are on record. I've talked to them both on great length. And they say they saw the object go across that scope, 60-mile scope in seconds, in other words, thousands of miles an hour, twice. They saw it come back. They physically saw the glowing orange or reddish object. They saw it go into the forest. What are we supposed to make of this? These two men had critical confirming information about the encounter, but waited decades before coming forward. Why? The mirror suggests that it was because they were concerned that revealing what they had seen would have ramifications for their careers. Maybe. But again, there was no evidence before this that radar had picked up anything unusual at the time. Retired Air Force pilot James McGahey corroborates this. What should be very clear about during this entire time There were no other visual sightings of anything, and there were no radar reports of anything on the air defense radar. I know because I checked all the reports. So that's what basically happened on the first night. At the time, in 1980, it was reported to the Ministry of Defense. It was just unexplained lights in the sky over Rendlesham Forest. Sheffield Hallam University Associate Professor David Clark. And all the Ministry of Defence did was Simon Whedon copied Colonel Holt's memo, he sent it to all the different radar stations in that area that were responsible for air defence. He said, did you see anything unusual? 
on these dates. They looked on their logbooks, no, nothing registered, that's it then, file it with the rest. They weren't authorised to do any further investigation other than that. Now the problem is, you can only make checks on radar if you've got very specific, accurate information, date, time, location, etc., etc. Remember in episode two, where we saw that Halt had mixed up the dates of the encounters? He identified everything as happening a day later than it actually did. Here's where it becomes an issue with verifying the radar readings. When that memo was copied to the radar stations and they did the checks on the radar, they were looking at the wrong times and the wrong dates. Realizing this problem, David Clark did some investigation to find witnesses who could speak to the radar readings on the night of December 28th, the night that Halt was in the forest. I tracked the radar station operator down who was there, who was actually the person who took the call from Colonel Holt in the forest. And he said it was absolutely insistent that there was something there. Could I look at the radar picture? I looked at the radar picture over and over again. There's nothing on the radar. We know it's an accurate memory because there's a contemporaneous memo in the file, the Ministry of Defence file, from that very person who I spoke to, dated 1981, saying exactly the same thing. That's evidence that the story is accurate. This piece of evidence isn't affected by the incorrect dates in the HALT memo. The radar operator is reacting to HALT's calls on the third night of the encounter. This has to be the correct night. Two sensational new claims based entirely on eyewitness accounts given decades after the fact. Both claims contradicted by what was known back in 1980. These new additions to the story, if you believe them, both make it more fantastic and undermine skeptical explanations for the encounters. But the most sensational claim was yet to come, and it involved a message from the future. Strange Arrivals will return in a moment. Awards Watch says Liam Neeson is at his best. Don't miss In the Land of Saints and Sinners. Having left his dark past behind, retired hitman Finbar Murphy, played by Neeson, leads a quiet life in a remote coastal Irish town. But when a menacing crew of terrorists arrive, Finbar is drawn into a vicious game of cat and mouse, forcing him to choose between exposing his secret identity or defending his friends and neighbors. In the Land of Saints and Sinners, from Samuel Goldwyn Films and Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. Watch it now on digital. Rated R. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
In episode one, while discussing the first night of the encounter, I said that Sergeant Jim Penniston had a more extensive story of what happened in the forest clearing and that we would come back to it. Now is that time. Remember, Penniston and Burroughs were approaching what they believed to be the source of the light. Another airman, Ed Cabansag, trailed at a distance. At first they ducked behind a berm, but eventually Penniston decided to proceed. Before going over the mound and approaching the light, Penniston looked over at Burroughs and found him motionless, just standing there looking. I don't know if he was stunned. I don't know if he was scared. I don't know. I don't know. He just wasn't moving. But when I turned back around, Kabanzak wasn't moving either. As I came up over the berm, the light, which was at one point very intense, uh, started to dissipate. And as it dissipated, I seen a forming of a black triangular craft sitting just above the forest floor. The white light disappeared completely and all of there, the only thing I could see was this black craft with the white light coming out of the bottom of it. I wasn't sure if it was a hostile threat or not. They had not taken their weapons with them when they left the base. So Penniston was unarmed and his two companions were unmoving. He would have felt very much alone. So I wasn't sure if I was going to survive this. As I got closer to the craft, I was looking underneath it to see what was holding it up. It was fixed to the ground somehow, but there was no landing gear. And um, all I could see is beams of light. But the strange part about the beams of light is they actually made indentions into the ground, maybe an inch, inch and a half. So I was trying to figure out how that is... Uh, making this craft, uh, you know, stay stationary. And so I tried to move it with my hands. And if you had an automobile out there in the woods and you tried to shove it a little bit, you'd get some movement, maybe, you know, like a half inch, an inch or something like that. This didn't budge at all, just stayed fixed. Penniston says he had a notebook with him and that he started filling it with as much information as he could because he wasn't sure if he'd survive. He wanted to leave a record. I had no way of measuring it or anything like that. Uh, so I used what I had. I, I pasted off at nine feet. There was no sound around the craft. There was no sound in the forest. Uh, it was completely quiet. There was a, uh, I'll call it a dorsal fin type thing coming up out of the back of the craft or from center to the back. And that went up probably about uh, making about seven and a half feet total with the craft, too. I'm six foot two, so that's what I guessed at that. Uh, I started looking for obvious things that airplanes have that make them fly. Things like, you know, Arions and flaps, crew compartment, things of that nature, and it was void of all those things. The craft, as a matter of fact, was uh, completely smooth. Like There was no rivets, there was no joints, there was nothing like that. Penniston made a complete circuit around the craft. He noticed that there was some type of writing on its exterior, but it wasn't what he would have expected. The uh, writing that appeared to somehow uh, look like maybe uh, Egyptian-type glyphs or something like that. As I approached, 
the glyphs I went from, you know, touching the side of the craft, which is completely smooth. And when I got to the glyphs on it, they seemed like they were etched in to the side of the craft. They felt like going from complete smoothness of glass to like sandpaper. Penniston says there was a row of those hieroglyphics along the bottom of the craft. He estimated the row is three or four feet across and the glyphs were maybe five inches high. There was a larger one above it, which was a circular one with a triangle and had three other little uh, circles in it. And so I recorded all that stuff uh, in my notebook. As I came back around, um, because I wanted to concentrate on those glyphs a little bit more, to get around to the, the glyphs itself. He was drawn to the larger one, the circular one with the triangle and three other circles inside. When I touched the center one, I had this immense bright white light emulate. I couldn't see anything else in the forest. All I could see was this white light. And in the white light, I could see like ones and zeros, okay? Uh, it made no sense at all. It was terrifying. I don't know how long I had my hand on that symbol. It wasn't long, maybe five, 10 seconds. And I started gaining my senses. And all I did was just take my hand off it. And immediately when I did that, the light was gone. I could see the craft again. Now you'd expect that after having a bright light shined in your face, that it would take your eyes a few minutes to adjust back to be able to see in the dark forest. But this wasn't the case. Penniston says he could see perfectly well immediately after the light, or what he perceived as light, was turned off. So the technology wasn't light. It was something else, but it appeared to be light. He walked back around to the other side of the craft. I started to see more activity, pie-shaped, colored lighting that was in the fabric of the craft reappeared and started moving again. So I backed away from it. I thought I activated something. I thought it might even explode. So I got back on the ground. And then the uh, white light again, this bright light started to encompass this craft where I couldn't see the craft no more. All I see is this white light until it started moving back through the trees. Remember, it was the trees are only five to six feet apart and I paced off the craft at least being nine feet wide. And so it was impossible to do that, but it was doing that. And it went maybe 20 feet. Then it rose to uh, treetop level. I could see the bottom of the craft then, and it made a slight right turn, and it was gone in the blink of an eye. According to Penniston, during this entire time, Burroughs and Cabansag were frozen unmoving. This is what Burroughs remembers. When we got close to it, what I remember is simply it was bright, it kind of dimmed down, then it got bright again and left. So that's what I remember. I don't remember any of the things that Penniston said took place. Ed, who was with us, also doesn't remember that. The bright light is consistent with Penniston's story, but it also shows how Penniston's account, with the other two men not responding is, as Joe Nickel might say, vaccinated against contradiction. 
The fact that they don't remember anything about it is baked into the story. After returning to the forest with Burroughs to check the site in the daylight, Peniston eventually returned home. He says he tried to sleep but couldn't, and eventually got up around midnight to make a cup of coffee. I sat down at my dining room table, and I pulled my notebook back out because, uh, you know, I was just going to go over my notes. And so I was looking through that, and I thought I was losing my mind. I really did because of the trauma. Because I could see nothing but these ones and zeros. I closed my eyes, and mind's eye, I could see ones and zeros. So I'm looking at it, the notebook, and I says, you know, I think I can write those things down. If the ones and zeros don't, you know, subside a little bit, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to go to the base hospital. I knew that was a career ender. He says he felt a compulsion to write down the sequence of ones and zeros. Flipped open to the back of the notebook where, you know, where that's the only paper I had. I started, you know, writing down, you know, this, the numbers. The one, zero, 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 one, 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 zero, one. And when I did that, uh, I felt better. And so I just continued to do that. Uh, and I wrote down, you know, 16 pages of them. And I got to the 16th page and they were gone. I couldn't see them no more. And I felt great. So I said, my God, I think I've dodged a bullet here career-wise. So um, I, I went back to bed and I actually slept all night. And, Uh, until the following day. Peniston says that he didn't tell anyone about the numbers he had written down because it was, in his words, pure insanity. In fact, the numbers wouldn't resurface until an apparently chance occurrence during the filming of a TV episode. Then I'm doing a film shoot with Burroughs, the other guy that was there, and uh, Linda Moulton Howe, she was there. Linda Moulton Howe is a journalist with a longtime interest in UFOs and the paranormal. And it was for ancient aliens. And we're out in Phoenix. This is like 2012. It was only when people started making documentary films about this case that it really started to take off. This is researcher Ian Ridpath. And this is something also that you get with a lot of UFO cases, that once film crews start interviewing witnesses, they start getting them to talk up the case, and whole new details are introduced. I would say invented. I was getting interviewed, and girls asked about a time in there. So I'm looking through my notebook and I flipped it back too far and I have all these ones and zeros written down. I figure, what the hell, this is 30 years later. And only a couple of years after Halt's affidavit with his new information. Burroughs says, what's that? I figured, well, I might as well tell him what happened. And uh, Linda Moulton Howell looks at it and she says, that's binary code. And when she said that, I says, you know what? I says, that's binary code? She goes, yeah. I said, I never knew what that was. And she said, oh, no. And I said, when do you? So now everybody's excited, and they said they, they want to go and analyze it. And I said, I'll have to think about it. 
Prometheus Entertainment, the production company for Ancient Aliens, sent the binary code to be deciphered. The phrases they got back were cryptic, bizarre, and obscure. Things such as, eyes of your eyes, origin year 8100, exploration of humanity 666-8100, and continuous for planetary advance. Apparently, a transmission error ended this word early. And there was uh, seven sets of coordinates. I should really say six because one of them was done twice. He's talking here about geographic coordinates designating six locations around the globe. One was off of uh, southwest off of Ireland, out in the middle of the ocean. And the other one was uh, near Sedona, Arizona. The other one was uh, on the Belize border. One down in Peru. Uh, One in Greece and one in probably the most important, I think, was probably uh, the one from uh, Giza. It was near there. And then there's also one in a place in China. These locations that he mentions are all important places that allegedly have some sort of power according to some New Age philosophy. At this point in time, uh, Gary Osborne took those uh, coordinates and concentrated on those. Gary Osborne is a writer on New Age and esoteric subjects. I exchanged emails with him, but was unable to set up an interview to discuss his work. Probably about five years ago, he found out that there was correlation by the angles and stuff like that into different positions and different things around the world. And uh, what he determined that the raw binary message was not the real message. The the real message is is in the relationship of these uh, sites around the world. So a code within the code. And that's where the research went from there. I think you get the idea. It becomes more complicated, more convoluted. The first code doesn't hold the answer. You have to decipher the first code and then interpret the riddle of that message in order to unearth the true meaning. It begs the question, why wouldn't the intelligence behind this craft just beam him a straightforward message. If it's so important, why the codes within codes? I see the appeal in uncovering, in quotes, secret knowledge, but it doesn't seem to make much sense from a practical standpoint. I mean, they've gone to all this trouble. The binary code, I think very few people take the binary code seriously. Again, Ian Ridpath. This has been investigated, not by me, quite a number of people have investigated it, and they're pretty sure that, again, this is a much later fiction. It's an invention. And then there's the question of whether Peniston actually made contact with a craft in the first place, an event with no eyewitnesses. Chuck Halt, for one, is skeptical. When he was in communication, which was difficult to do because it was breaking up with the gate, Master Sergeant Chandler, who was the cop, senior cop at the gate, said that he heard the conversations that they were trying to get near it, but they couldn't get near it. 
Interesting, huh? When he comes back to the base, he tells Captain Barano it was definitely mechanical. We tried to get close. They didn't get close. Suddenly he touched it. He has his coat. Now, I can't say he didn't get a coat somewhere, but I don't think he ever touched it. Again, David Clark. You've got all these different groups of people who have all got different versions of the same story, all contradictory, all fighting amongst themselves to be the one that is the true Rendlesham story. So you've got Jim Penniston with his story, you've got John Burroughs with his story, you've got Colonel Holt. Remember, after 30 years, Holt came out with a new version of his encounter. Only a couple of years later, Penniston tells his story about the binary code. They're all sort of trying to get one over on each other and trying to assert themselves as the true story. You know, the one that will be passed on into the future. In my interviews, Halt and Penniston spent time trying to discredit the other. When I talked to John Burroughs, he did not engage in undermining the other two. Halt, too, wasn't critical of Burroughs, though Penniston was, I would say, uncharitable. But I can understand it. It's a seminal moment in all of their lives, and each one of them wants to have some control over what is their own story. And in speaking with me, they are all able to get their story out again, but also cede some control because I am the one who ends up telling it and I end up making decisions that I'm sure they won't be satisfied with. The bottom line, if you look at them all, there's very little common ground, other than the fact that there are a bunch of guys larking around in a forest and saw some odd lights. That's, that's, the, <laughs> that's the only thing that comes out of it. Remember, we have heard again and again how the military seemed unbothered about the encounters. It seems clear that they did not take them very seriously. And though Penniston and Halt disagree on a lot, they do agree that the Air Force engaged in a cover-up in order to keep the encounter secret. So, uh, yeah, the, the cover-up was real. And the other thing they wanted to cover up is uh, receiving binary code. That's probably why I never even thought about the uh, binary for 30 years. Uh, it's because of the efforts to keep it quiet. I went and started seeing a psychiatrist for about a month, and finally she says, uh, you know, would you be open to a regression on this? This was in 1994. He did one session, and when it was over, the doctor said that she thought that he needed another session. I said, why? I said, I feel great. And she goes, well, we have to talk about Woodbridge you know? And during that, the second session, it shows uh, in there where I get actually sodium pentothal. Sodium pentothal is an anesthetic that is sometimes called truth serum because it was thought to cloud a person's thinking to the degree that they wouldn't be able to formulate a lie. It shows uh, how they put a block in to cover what exactly was going on around the craft with the binary, but it kept me talking and from talking about it, but I knew about the ones and zeros. I didn't know it was binary code or nothing like that, but I knew it was ones and zeros. Penniston claims that the therapist got rid of what he calls the block, a mechanism by which his interrogators were able to make him forget the binary code experience. 
And that is why the code only emerged 30 plus years after the encounter. Season one of Strange Arrivals took an extensive look at regression hypnosis, and it is clear that you can't rely on information produced using this technique. The fact that Penniston believed he was subject to interrogation and memory manipulation would be adequate to produce the quote-unquote memory in a regression hypnosis session. That being said, Halt also believes that there has been a cover-up. He wrote in his 2010 affidavit, I believe that the objects that I saw at close quarter were extraterrestrial in origin, and that the security services of both the United States and the United Kingdom have attempted, both then and now, to subvert the significance of what occurred at Rendlesham Forest and RAF Bentwaters by the use of well-practiced methods of disinformation. Halt was more specific when I spoke with him 10 years later, echoing the basics of Penniston's claims. They didn't tell me, and nobody told me, and I didn't find out until like eight or 10 or more years later. They were drugged with sodium amaryl or sodium pentothal and hypnotized, and there's no doubt in my mind they were given what's called screen memories, in other words, false memories. These claims have been strongly disputed. David Clark spoke with Colonel Conrad, one of Halt's superiors, in 1980. Conrad was blunt in his criticism of Halt's contention. He said, quote, Colonel Halt can believe as he wishes. I've already disputed to some degree what he reported. However, he should be ashamed and embarrassed by his allegation that his country and England both conspire to deceive their citizens over this issue. He knows better. Retired Air Force pilot James McGahey echoes this criticism. This is all complete, utter nonsense. It never happened. There's no evidence it happened. It's totally inconsistent with everything and everything you would ever think of about it. It's embarrassing to the Air Force that these people are actually telling all these crazy stories. Here's the thing with Rendlesham. There is no settled-upon story. There are the initial events, the skeptical explanation, and then these narratives that emerge later that expand on the initial encounters. And this is the dynamic that creates a modern legend. Again, David Clark. In order for the story to remain current and for people to keep telling it, you've got to keep adding something to it to make it more interesting. It's almost like a virus. It needs to find a host so it can pass it on to some other person. So a lot of the sort of things that, that we think of as King Arthur are actual modern accretions that have been added to the story. And other bits of the story have fallen away because they were things that didn't quite fit the way people wanted the story to go. People try things, they try and expand upon the original story because there's only so many times you can tell a story about a group of people going into a forest and seeing lights in the sky. You know, if that's just the story, it's not going to survive very long because it's not exciting enough. The novelty wears off, so you've got to make it more interesting by saying, well, the light didn't just stay in the sky, it landed on the ground and left marks that police officers came and saw, and, and that someone went up and actually touched it, and then they had these you know, binary code downloads and that. Without that, the story just remains the same as all these zillions of other stories about people seeing lights in the sky. And the additions to the story continue to this day. 
Just in the past year, we've seen headlines such as from BBC News Online, Rendlesham Forest UFO, are we any closer to the truth 40 years on? From the British newspaper The Sun, X-File Riddle, SAS Trooper claims UK's most famous UFO sighting was revenge prank after US soldiers called us aliens. Again, from The Sun, Britain's most famous UFO sighting was a top-secret military experiment. From the British newspaper The Daily Star, Britain's Roswell witnesses describe glowing UFO like a scene from Star Trek 40 years on. Burroughs, Penniston, and Halt all have books out with their accounts and theories about the Rendlesham encounters. Each, in their own way, is vying to establish the official narrative. This includes asserting what they believe was actually behind the encounter. For instance, Burroughs believes that at least part of it was a downed Soviet satellite. There's a good chance part of this incident involved us bringing down a Russian satellite. So there's a decent chance it was lifted out of the forest by a helicopter and it looked like a crate that it was you know, hoisting up and carried over to the fly line. It could have been a recovered satellite don't know for sure, but they did bring something out of the forest. I couldn't tell you exactly where it was, but there was a helicopter hovering over that area, and then it lifted something up, and it came out towards the fly line. But he says the satellite was just one component of what happened. Called weaponization of a UAP. And basically, what most people don't know, there's tons of things that were being developed and worked on right outside the back gate of Woodbridge. There was all different types of facilities modeled from Heath, which was a joint British-American facility, and Marconi was working at the British side with the Americans also. You had Bowsey, and then you had some other facilities that were further away, but they were working on all kinds of things, and one of the things is documented on is the SDI being worked on back then. They were working on drones, they were working on laser technology, they were working on all kinds of EMP technology and stuff. And also, there is some kind of phenomenon that's there. It's still there to this day because there's still stuff that goes on. But ultimately, there's a phenomenon there and what we were working on at the time, too. All ties in. Jim Penniston also doubts that they encountered extraterrestrials in the forest. As far as extraterrestrial stuff, there's nothing like that happening. I never used the term UFO, and I never said that uh, or even suggested this craft was alien, because I never had that impression uh, from the start. Based on the phrases contained in the binary message and statements he made while undergoing hypnotic regression, he believes that the craft was from the future. It's humans from the year 8100. The thing they're trying to cover up isn't about ufology and aliens and all that. They're trying to cover up it's us. It's, it's us doing, uh, you know, interdimensional travel. During his hypnotic regression, Penniston says he recalled his interrogation experience after the encounter. He remembers them asking him about that period in the clearing with the craft. They're asking what I'm seeing, and I said, they're, they're not, you know, extraterrestrial. They're, they're us. They're us from the future. This explanation guides his understanding of what happened to him in 1980. 
that's uh, what our belief is and that's what our findings every day are reinforcing that. Finally, when I spoke with Chuck Halt, I asked if he had a theory about what he saw that night. No, I just know it's something that's either here in some form or shape or some type of presence. Many, many stories just disappear. You know, if you look back in the annals of ufology, there are many stories like Rendlesham that people would not recognize if you told them because they're not the ones that have become part of the myth as it is presented in the media. You may have heard of the Rendlesham Forest Encounters before listening to this podcast, or you may not have, but there are UFO legends, whether they are true or not, that nearly everyone has heard about. One of these is a narrative that has formed around the way the U.S. government and military has handled the UFO question. It starts in 1947, next time on Strange Arrivals. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane with executive producers Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey. Special thanks to our voice actors, Joe McCormick and Jeff Williams. Learn more about the show over at GrimAndMild.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Awards Watch says Liam Neeson is at his best. Don't miss In the Land of Saints and Sinners. Having left his dark past behind, retired hitman Finbar Murphy, played by Neeson, leads a quiet life in a remote coastal Irish town. But when a menacing crew of terrorists arrive, Finbar is drawn into a vicious game of cat and mouse, forcing him to choose between exposing his secret identity or defending his friends and neighbors. In the land of saints and sinners, from Samuel Goldwyn Films and Sony Pictures Home Entertainment, watch it now on digital. Rated R.